Fed Talks is a podcast for theater teachers and theater education students. I am Dr. Jimmy Christman, theater education professor at Illinois State University. Each week, I want to bring you stories and interviews from experienced K-12 theater teachers, current theater education majors, and professors of theater education that will warm your heart, renew your faith in teaching, and provide resources to better your practice in your theater classroom. I am super excited to welcome to this episode of Fed Talks, Mikey Mulhern, who works as the artistic director of Shakespeare on the Deck in Los Angeles, California. Um, Mikey, welcome to the podcast. I am super excited to talk with you today, uh, specifically about um, decolonization of Shakespeare and conscious casting, and I know we're going to get into all that, but, but welcome to the show. So just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you and your journey to where we are now in your career. Yeah. um, Well, thank you for having me on. I'm super excited. It's a beautiful Sunday morning to talk about this stuff. Um, So I, so where I started, theater has kind of just been something I've always done, um, have always integrated into my life for fun. Someone told me I could do it professionally and I was like, okay, knowing you know nothing about that. Um, I went to school and uh, I went to Millican uh, University, got my BFA in acting performance got to, you know, spend a semester in London at the Globe. Um, that's kind of really where my um, love of Shakespeare really happened because <laughs> Shakespeare in education is often stuffy and antiquated and I'm frankly quite boring because no one knows what to do with it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's very fascinating. But um, so it was kind of there that my love particularly of Shakespeare um, happened. Uh, graduated, lived in Chicago for a few years, worked professionally, was lucky, um, had a lot of really incredible opportunities um, of a variety of opportunities that I feel like shaped everything that I do now from um, being on stage at Second City, which was incredible to, you know, doing Union Shakespeare with Nick Sand uh, Sandys, who's a huge uh, Shakespeare guru in the city, um, who also kind of has a similar passion, as we'll get to, I'm sure, um, of how performance and the uh, how to perform Shakespeare and how to approach it and make it accessible. Uh, and then, yeah, moved out here four and a half years ago uh, f- to Los Angeles just to have a change of scenery and you know go into a more saturated market (laughs) um but uh no um la has been good to me it's been very um in the sense of i've got to expand my career and focus in more on directing um which uh i've i mean i'm an actor director but i've primarily focused consistently on directing probably the past 10 years I had to think about my age and when I started school um, to do that math. But uh, for the past 10 years, so in L.A., I've had the opportunity, of course, to do some film and things like that. But um, create my own company where, like, you couldn't do that in Chicago. So I did a show on the roof of a hotel parallel to um, how Chicago shakes started which I just found out they did their first show on a roof 40 years ago and I was like what that's crazy um and one kind of off show turns into a 501c3 two years later and here we are and we're becoming known especially out here for being um young brash a little bit more innovative um 
challenging the preconceived notions of not only um, the standard of American theater and what kind of theater is now, um, but also challenging our preconceived notions of Shakespeare. Um, we definitely, you either love us or you hate us. <laughs> and I say, I don't say hate in a bad way. I, if you're very antiquated in the way and it's like Shakespeare always has to be done this way, then you probably won't love us. But um, that's where the brashness comes in of us. But um, we uh, we really like to focus on making him accessible while also honoring some really incredible technique. I'm a technique stickler. So I guess we could talk more about that in a, in a bit. But um, that's my shortened journey. I've it's it's really like I don't even think it's like less than the cliff notes of it because I I look back at the 10 years of my professional life and I have done a lot I have done a lot of really awesome things that yeah that are all kind of coming to fruition now um, but yeah well, tell me a little bit more about kind of those early experiences in theater for you and, and kind of where that fire started um, and which ignited to where we are now. Yeah, um, I it's so hard to pinpoint it. I mean, like truly as a child, I used to I think my first show, I used to act things out that I saw on TV. So I think theater and performance and connecting with people has always been something there. I used to write, direct, make my family, like my cousins and sibling, like do shows for me. Um, my dad built me a theater in our garage. <laughs> <laughs> like what sheet, like he's a Midwestern, like sheet metal working dad, like has no idea, um, but supported his gay son by building him a theater to the best of his ability. So it's always kind of been a passion for me. And I found that my passion for being behind the scenes has been stronger than being up front and on stage. Um, as I've gotten older, like working with students, working with actors, working with designers, like that creative collaboration um, has fueled me more than being um, let me be out on stage acting. Uh, but yeah, that passion's always been there. It's, it's, I, it's one of those weird things I can't ever pinpoint because I've just always done it and just didn't know. But well, yeah. I think one of the things that resonated with me um, when, when you contacted me um, and, and, and now hearing your story is um, that there's a, you have a passion for doing Shakespeare. And, and presenting that in a way that is is exciting and and relevant and fresh um, for for not just younger people but just everyone um, and and to, to make it a little more accessible to people um, if you've listened to any of the past episodes of of, of fed talks I, I've, I've been very open about my fear of Shakespeare um, I have I had a horrible experience through high school uh, with teachers who did not know how to teach it well um, and that led me to now and I'm five plays away from finishing the entire Shakespeare 2020 thing. So I'm excited. Um, I've committed to it and I did it, but, but I would love to know a little bit about what were some of the, the good and bad experiences that you've had with um, Shakespeare um, as you've, as you've learned and grown in your career. Yeah. Um, definitely high school. 
<laughs> um, it's so interesting. One of the, I did a community theater show of Midsummer Night's Dream and got to play flute. That was an incredible, that shaped me before I even touched Shakespeare really in, in high school. I got to play that young. Um, and they kind of just gave me free reign and I had a great time and I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I don't know how to act, you know, especially Shakespeare. I'm just, thank God it was in prose because who knows? There was no technique. <laughs> um, but what then shaped me negatively was how we teach it in high school. Like you sit at a desk and you read it and you're like, first of all, you're not even reading good editions of it. You're reading like really bad. We could get to my editions later. Folgers, get that out of here. Do not ever bring a Folgers copy. Sorry, sorry, Shakespeare DC, but do not bring a Folgers copy in my rehearsal room. Um, uh, you just get really bad editions and people teach it from a grammatical perspective, but it's not, it's not about the grammar. Um, and so then you think Shakespeare's boring and whatever. And then uh, it wasn't till, it really wasn't until the globe, the globe education that I found a love for it. Um, I have an incredible, we had an incredible teacher at Milliken, um, Alex Miller, amazing man. Um, his passion for connecting Shakespeare with his, is this answering the question? I'm it so is, sorry. It is, it is, it is. I was like, I don't want to go off on a tangent. Um, um, so high school, yeah, you get the basics and I, that's what excited me about your podcast because I'm like, oh, there's such an opportunity to change how we approach it in the educational setting for high school and university. But, um, oh God. Uh, so Alex Miller, amazing teacher at Milliken, was the first time that I realized that Shakespeare was for the people that it was meant to be a communal sport, that it was meant to be for everyone, which it's not for everyone anymore. We don't perform it for everyone anymore. Um, but he also had a technique that didn't sit right with me. And it wasn't until the Globe where they had such a, they used the folio method and approaching it from, a very technical place that allowed you to live and from an acting standpoint is kind of really what changed the game for me. And then I was like, this is how I want to do it. You stand on the globe stage and you perform a show. It is one of the most eye opening experiences. I'm sure people will disagree because it is a, it is a tourist thing, but it's also not like they've really shaped it to be an incredible company. Um, the tourism keeps the lights on, but it doesn't, define their work per se um because they are not private they are privately funded they are not public or they're not um under the british funding but um it was there that like really changed that i was like oh you can't like this is how it should be it should be fun it should be on your feet it should be like there's an audience member and this line is directly towards them and you get to have that incredible connection with people which when you talk when when i talk about my experiences to where i am in my career connecting with people was always at the forefront really making sure i gave an audience the an experience that they would remember and that they would leave like having a great time was always something at the forefront even in those garage shows. I just didn't know it really at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so 
there's some other things like in your journey along the way that I want to go back and unpack a little later on. But just tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing with Shakespeare on the deck and and how you're bringing that and making that connection with people, um, especially in a very saturated market like you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Shakes started again. Um, I work for my day gig because we all have day jobs. Well, not all of us, but a lot of us. Um, was working for a Kimpton hotel and we started um, and Kimpton's a unique brand in which they do a lot of eclectic things. My boss and I are both from Chicago. I was like, can I do a show on our sun deck? I want to do it. I'm giving you a little history of shakes because it shapes where we are today. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to do a show like similar to backroom Shakespeare project, but not as self-indulgent. I'm firing a lot of shots. I'm going to have a target on my back after this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But to have a communal, to set it in a place that takes people out of a theatrical setting, that takes people out of like, oh, I'm sitting in the dark and I have to, which I think is what Backroom Shakes does so brilliantly. You put it in a bar. Like, that's amazing. Um, But take people out of the conscious, like, here's the rules of a theater to kind of go back to 1604 where there were no rules. Um, where there was a lot less, but, um, and to, to strip down Shakespeare completely so that everything is very specific. Every costume piece has to be more specific. We don't need to put it in a time period. We don't need big production elements. It's all communal lighting. Like, so let's take those elements from original practice and bring them into the modern setting, into the modern day. And let's see what happens. And, it was one of those things where it was like you allow we allowed people to have fun and that's what we continue to do so we set a standard from our very first show to where we are now which is we do take original practice and we modernize it so we it's always very minimal costumes it's always very minimal scenic it's always very specific um and we really focus on the technique we really focus on living we really focus on enjoying it um and we really focus on the community that we get to create with the audience to try to take people out so they can vocally respond if they want to they can be part of this again which they're not did that answer the question it did it did um so what what are some things that that teachers can do um in their classrooms to to continue to make this accessible because I, I i again no no shade to illinois shakespeare festival where where i, I am i'm employed part of yeah. the year um i because i think they do beautiful work um but some of my most meaningful experiences with shakespeare um and those have been really few and far between have been with these these companies that everything is stripped down um i think of chickspear in charlotte north carolina um and, and we we performed in a warehouse you know we their performance was in a warehouse and it was just stripped down and it was these women who loved the text and loved these stories and wanted to bring them to people um and and those have been my most meaningful moments um and experiences with shakespeare so what can some teachers do in their classrooms to even alter their practice just a little bit because we're stubborn and and we're we're locked in our ways many times so what can we do uh, yeah i i feel like that's such a hard question for me because I taught seventh and eighth graders. And when I approached it, it was like, you're not training. Like as a teacher, it's like, you know, you're not training your students to be actors because I, that's, you're not like, 
a majority of teachers who will, when you first are teaching Shakespeare. But what you really want to do is I think you want to look at those original practices. I think you want to defy probably standards that you've been taught in school and how you should teach and find fun, interactive ways that are engaging, that are practical to take something that's so academic and so stuffy and make it tangible for people, if that makes sense. So we do a lot of like, let's clap out how to do a folio beat. Like when I work with younger students, it's like, we're talking about figurative language. It's like, okay, here's a quote from the play that we're studying. Draw it. As a group, draw what you see. Okay, now how can you with those words paint that picture for me? So if I didn't see the drawing, if I didn't see how you visualized it, how can you help me visualize it? Because there's so much lush because there was no scenery. So they're literally with their words painting mm -hmm. the picture of the atmosphere. Um, I always gave students scenes from an edited show. So I cut the show down and, and everyone was assigned roles. Some people, more than one person played Romeo or whatever, if we're doing Romeo and Juliet, but like each group of students then had a scene to bring to life. And we taught things from like attack. I'm sorry. I'm like going back. Cause now I work only like with professional actors. So I'm like trying to I'm like, what did I do like three years ago? Um, but um, it's like things like that. Wait, so it's not, you're not sitting at your desk anymore. Like you're not sitting in a desk. You're not reading the play as a group and like going line by line. It's like, you're finding ways to physically engage students. You're finding ways for them to actually perform in whatever way they want to perform it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Can you, can you tell, talk a little bit more about your, your work with professional actors and the types of, of exercises and explorations you may do with them that, that, teachers could probably pull from and even use in their rehearsals. I mean, you want to talk about people stuck in their ways. Um, just kidding. <laughs> if you've worked with an actor. Um, no, it's, it really is. It's, it's breaking the stigma. I think our first job is both educate. I think our first job as educators and as a director, I'm an educator mm -hmm. um, is to break the stigma for ourselves. So I have to walk into a rehearsal room being like, this is fun. And then with actors be like, this is fun. I mean, I am on my feet with them. I am trying to physically get them engaged. I'm going through exercise of, uh, God, like physical warm-ups, like things that it's like, so they don't get so locked in their brain. We'll, well, we can't do this now, but we'll do like push and pull exercise. Like we'll be push like pushing against each other, doing a scene so you feel like conflict if, if it's not quite as heightened as we need it to be. Um, if I don't feel like the emotion is there, this is like a hippy dippy exercise, but I'm like, I really am like, let's just start safely vocally yelling. Like if this is an intense scene, like let's, let's get out of our comfort zone and explore our possible, like expand our um, possibilities with it. Uh, because for me, that's the first thing with anybody is, this isn't boring, but I have to walk in being like, how do I make this fun again? And for actors, it's let's, yeah, like let's, let's up the antics. Cause usually it's all very mellow and Shakespeare. And I'm like, these people are killing each other. Like they're taking each other out left and right. There's like nothing mellow about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, I guess I use less exercises now. I'm usually up on my feet 
really engaging and really working with people to just like find um, more of a passion. Well, it from from what I'm hearing is it's we need to take the things that we already do with our kids when we're working a play mm-hmm. that's not William Shakespeare mm-hmm. and and keep those in practice and and not treat um Shakespeare as if it's so precious and so sacred and we can we can let our hair down we can play with it we can have fun with this we can explore and dig with these characters in the story in the very same ways mm-hmm. yeah and i think what's important for educators too is shakespeare and this is why we use texts that have our better grammar like or grammatically correct for us but like he used punctuation to be a roadmap for actors. It's not grammatically correct, but all of that means something. So I think for educators, you can't approach it from necessarily an academic standpoint. You have to approach it from a performance standpoint because it was meant to be performed. Mm-hmm. Like that is also the biggest thing. It's like you you can't teach it from a desk. It, it's not meant to do that. That's why people struggle. Um, so it's finding different ways to, it's just, it's, it's reeducating yourself and being like, yeah, you were probably taught how to teach it wrong <laughs> incorrectly. And that's okay. That's okay. But yeah, it's never really going to change. And for theater, te- like for teachers who specifically do theater, like it's even more important to teach it from a performance standpoint. And it's even more important to be aware of, the technical aspects of it and how that influences performance and how it serves the actor and how it serves the story. Um, Cause I can tell you, you can read a passage of Shakespeare and based on the punctuation alone or the iambic, I can be like that person is dealing with a lot right now because it's all in the text because there was no director. He had to give them everything. So sorry, you were going to say something. No, I I just, I just wanted to know where you were when, I mean, you probably weren't even born when I was in high school, but where were you when I was learning this? Um, (laughs) I'd love to go back a little bit and, and dig into your time in Chicago when you were with uh, second city and, and what that was like and, and did how, if they did, um, did that experience influence what you're doing now? Yeah, I think the biggest thing with Second City is it got me out of my head and taught me to play. I think that's as simple as Second City taught me. It's incredible. I was very fortunate to go through. um, I went through the, I was the first graduating class of the Music Improv Conservatory and then got to do a show there. Um, But... I mean, one, it teaches you structure. It teaches you connection with people. It teaches that my job on stage is, like an actor, my job is to support, um, to make everyone else look good. And in turn, their job is to do the same. And I bring that to every rehearsal room. I bring that to every classroom, that my job is not about me. That my job is to be there for the um, students I'm working with, the actors in the room, the designers, because all of that then serves the story and serves what we're working on in any t- sort of room. So yeah, Second City, Second City taught me to trust the instincts, get out of my head, have a good time, because God forbid, you know, we have a good time doing this. And then um, really that this is not about me. Because yeah. when you say you're, we get stuck in our ways, like there's a lot of ego involved and you have to step aside and say, 
maybe there is something better. Maybe there's a different way I can do this. Maybe there's a different way I can serve this, um, which I think is a very rare mentality in our field mm. now. I think it's starting to come back, but I think it's, it's rare to find mm. as a common thread. Well, I... I want to go ahead and dig into um, the the topics of, of conscious casting and decolonization of the Bard. Um, I think we're in a, a I think we were we were talking before the our, our interview began that that um, we're in this this moment of reckoning and and I think everyone is reevaluating where we are in terms of of those things. So, talk to me a little bit about your experience with that and and what you're currently doing with that. Yeah, conscious casting's always been something that I've done in general. Um, I didn't label it until later in life, obviously. Um, our very first show for Shakespeare was all women. And I didn't like the word gender bending because we weren't bending the characters. And so for me, conscious casting came about to give the freedom of saying, and this can be gender, we'll get into race and sexuality in a minute, but based just on gender is that I do not believe that the gender of the character needs to define the gender of the actor. As long as the actor is staying true to the truth and intention of the human they're bringing to life. So Macbeth is still Macbeth, whether or not you put a man or a woman in it. The minute you start to try to adopt Macbeth to a female playing Macbeth, that's when you start to mess with the story. That's when you start to gender bend and you change the truth and intention. And then we're watching someone trying to play a man because most likely that female's being directed or has the subconscious, I'm talking from experience too, of having to break people's stigma of themselves, playing what we think they should be playing. Like, you know, like, so when we did an all-female Mackers, it like conscious casting hopefully gives you the freedom to get out of that, to get out of the limitations and bring your truth to this character. Like, they don't change. It's just like, you just, we don't need you to play a man. Like, I'm not asking you to play a man. I'm asking you to play you as Macbeth and follow his journey. Um, so we don't change pronouns in Shakespeare when we have uh, when we do conscious casting, unless it's a choice specifically that then does affect the story. Um, so that's always been something we've done. Um, same with sexuality. Uh, we did Midsummer with, um, oh goodness, uh, Helena was a man and Lysander was a woman. And we changed it to Helenus and Lysandra. And it still made sense to the story because you can't be with her like Hermia can't be with Lysandra and we want you to be with Demetrius. And then of course, Helenus loves Demetrius, but Demetrius can't be in love with a man. Like that's not okay. So it was all kind of there without making it a big deal. Um, and again, still played the truth of Helena. Like Helena doesn't change because it's played by a man. Helena's still dealing with Helena's stuff. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So that's how kind of we approach conscious casting, but it also goes with, race which is the big topic right now and i think you use the word reckoning i think that's brilliant because i think the racial injustice and systematic oppression of this country is not something new but it is something that we have ignored and it is something that our industry both professionally and educationally have turned the other way 
we know it's happening, mm -hmm. especially like I'm fully white if we could probably hear it, but, uh, uh, sorry, it's a podcast. So I was like, oh, you can't see me, but, uh, um, but it's understanding then. So we've always got conscious casting, like gender, all of that has always been something my company has done very well that people don't even notice it, that it's not even something that we comment on because I do it in a way that it's not an all female production. It's just a production. But now we're moving to conscious casting of race and how to do that appropriately, how to do it so we're not filling a quota, that it doesn't feel like we're filling a quota, how we're understanding our own whiteness, because we like to talk about race, but we don't like to talk about whiteness and what comes with whiteness and the privilege that comes with whiteness and the filter in which we look at, especially Shakespeare, but work in general. So it, it then becomes a thing where it's like, well, here's, here's a black Hamlet. But I'm like, that's not conscious casting. You're just throwing a black Hamlet out there and saying like, here's black Hamlet. Because the actor is, unless you give that black actor the freedom to bring himself fully in all of himself, including his race where he's not limited by playing the white version of Hamlet, then you are not consciously casting him then we are not in fact changing the field. The biggest frustration for me is the young Vic did like, look at our all black death of a salesman. And I'm like, that's still a white story. Why did you not commission a black playwright to write that version with the incredible cast that they had? So, so upset about that still, because that's the problem with our industry. And that's the problem with conscious casting. And with Shakespeare, he's racist. He is super racist. And anyone who says otherwise is fooling themselves. And then I do think they're, yeah. It's like, that is one thing. He, the way in which he uses the word slave, the way in which he uses the word more, the way in which he compares and highlights like beauty. It's, anyway, so part of conscious casting is also being aware of, of that and then how you put people into roles and how you then, I guess, rescript Shakespeare so that it does become a freeing room. Sorry, I kind of started going into decolonization, but I was like, wait, I saw something unconscious casting. <laughs> but, uh, but the biggest thing with conscious casting in general, gender, race, sexuality, is that you have to give people, you have to give actors, students, whoever you're working with, the freedom to fully bring themselves to a role. You have to create a room for that. You have to create a room that can have difficult discussions. You have to create an awareness of your own privilege. I'm a man, but I have to be aware of the struggles that women face when working with women in conscious casting to really go from a place of openness and vulnerability to fail and to make sure that they can tell me everything that they need to, that they're struggling with their fears what not, what's holding them back, et cetera. So we can have an open dialogue so I can create a room in which they, they bring the best work to their table and they are not trying to play a stereotype that we have inflicted upon Shakespeare. And what, say, say we're in rehearsal mm -hmm. and, 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 and you're having that moment with that, that actor what would that look like in rehearsal? Like I, I have in my head what I want to say, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you before I chime in with that. Oh, I almost want to hear what you would say because <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, 
I think it's always a different balance. I have to go in already knowing that people aren't going to be comfortable. And I have to go in being like, I know that I'm doing the best that I can with the knowledge that I have, but that's still not enough. So it really comes down to the first time anybody brings up an issue. You cannot like for me, and that's is what hard because this is the general, this is the general in, in a room of mine, students included in an educational setting. Because I worked with underprivileged youth who came from what we would consider broken homes, like all of this stuff. You got to be there for them, but you got to be open. Anyway, the first thing is, dude, I, like you cannot play victim. You have to hear what people are saying. And then what I always say is, how can I support you? What can I do for you? There's no, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean it that way. It's like, thank you for telling me that. I was unaware. And then I will work very hard to not do that thing again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, go ahead, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Mm. That, was, that was it. I mean, for me, it's like I necessarily don't have something specific I want to say because it's always case by case and it depends on are they gay? Are they like, you know, I, I, I say gay. Are they queer? Are they like, see, I have to catch myself because I'm a gay man. So I immediately throw out gay, but that's, everyone's not gay. They're queer. So I like to use the umbrella of queer. Are they a female playing a man? Are they this or they that or whatever? But my first thing is always be open to being wrong and not play victim about it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think for, cause some, I'm, I'm thinking of practices that, that teachers have in rehearsals, um, as, as directors and you know we i i think being very um very intentional with how we're interacting with the actors and that you're truly creating a really collaborative space where if if you're asking them to bring 100% of their identity to the work that they're doing then you have to be open to your ideas aren't always the right ones and and you know, a true collaboration on some scene work with your, with your students and your actors and to, to hear them and be willing to change. And, and cause sometimes like we, we were, I think we were good at asking questions to help guide actors. Um, but most of the time we know the direction we want those answers to go. So we guide them to those answers. And yeah. I think, I think we have to stop that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if we're going to ask a question, truly ask a question and listen to and, apply what you're hearing back from them well like what like you walk in i can plan an entire show which i did you know i just staged seven and a half of angels in america three times because you know <laughs> keep adapting for covid but like i know going into that seven and a half hour journey that i'm i don't like that's in my brain like here's the vision like as long i think for educators and for directors and everything it's as long as you come in with a specific vision let the people that you bring in the room play. If they're really going off the rails, your vision is probably not specific enough. <laughs> like once in a while, people like jump ship and they do their own thing and then you got to bring them back. But like what you do is you just have to set the world of the play, the world of the room and the world of your vision and like give people the freedom to bring themselves to it. Because the minute that we tell someone, like you said, like, the minute that we guide someone to, I'm, I guess I'm riffing off what you're saying. The minute that I start guiding an actor who is non-white or non-male 
or non-cis in a direction away from their individuality and what they're fully bringing is the minute that I now close them off is the minute that now I'm restricting them and I'm doing what our society has done to them since the dawn of time. And that is the last thing that I want to do. So the intention is incredibly important Yeah, and ourselves aside and knowing we will fail. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking back to, I, I, I directed guys and dolls. Back in I love March, that show. Back in March, and I wanted to really approach it from a feminist um, perspective, um, where the women in the play were stronger. They're not the the, the playthings of these guys that they really ran the show. And in rehearsal, I my my the my actress playing Sarah said, "I don't know that this. I don't think I would do this as a strong female." Mm-hmm. And I had to stop myself from correcting her because I'm like, "I'm not a woman." I'm I'm not a woman and you're telling me this so let's incorporate what you just said into what we're doing. And the minute we did that the scene took on the exact direction I wanted it to go but that I couldn't make it go. And you know like like you were just saying I think as we provide the frame mm-hmm. and then let them create the piece of art inside that frame and being willing to being willing and open to share that canvas with them. Yeah, because that's our job. Like, it's crazy, yeah. people. And But it's because it's one of those things I was talking. So we have a resident intimacy uh, director. And we've had one pretty much since the beginning um, of our existence, which is crazy because we've had ones before it was even a thing. Um, but uh, we always, we talk, we have that conversation a ton. Like, it's just like, this is not, it's like, we just want to give people the freedom to bring themselves. And that's like with Shakespeare, like you coming in with, and a lot of shows, Guys and Dolls has, it's always done a certain way with a certain casting. And that's just the, and that's why I say like, we try to modernize antiquated practice because antiquated practice is a communal lighting, barely any costumes. So there we go. We're not limiting people to a time period. There are time periods and there are rules of those periods you still have to honor. Like say when we did Titus Andronicus, takes place in a very bar- barbaric area. Um, I just air quoted, forgetting again that <laughs> no one can see that. Um, I can our, see, so I support you. <laughs> a barbaric period of Roman history. And you have to still honor that because they're literally that play is just them destroying each other's family. It's like the simplest Shakespeare to understand. If anyone's ever confused, I'm like, literally just it's that it's super simple, but um, uh, they, it, it's like, you, you still honor all of that, but you don't have to be like, and these are like in goth clothing and these are in Roman clothing. It's like, no, our clothing for one was restrictive. Our clothing for the other was a little bit more free. And if it was restrictive, it was um, sensual in the way that it highlighted body. And giving even just stripping it down to those simplistic things allowed people to really play the freedom of they did weren't playing it. I have to play a time period. I just know the rules of the period and I have to play within that. Does that make sense? I feel like I just went off in left field by accident. I don't think you did. I don't think you did. (laughs) No, as I say, and then taking that to the educational field, it's like when you do do a Shakespeare production, whether it's in high school or college or whatnot, it's like we like to put so much on it. But in reality, you don't have to do anything. It's all in the language. It's all in the relationships. It's all in allowing people to hopefully be who they are in these roles. But anyway, it's a whole nother topic. 
<laughs> I love that. I love that. I would love to to hear a little bit about one of your favorite moments uh, from your career so far. It could be a funny moment, a, a kind of a horror story, one of those touching moments that really made you think about who you are as an artist and director. And There's like one really negative one that came up, but that's like in a good like in a way that it really like um shaped a lot of how I work now but um I think the moment for me I guess it's an overall hippie I call things hippy dippy um a hippy dippy one because it's not always tangible and it sounds like ethereal or whatever but um there was a moment when I moved to LA that I made the decision that I am no longer pursuing work or opportunities that weren't fulfilling to me, which is really swimming upstream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like is really going against the grain because the work that I will produce by being in a show that I'm not fully committed to that. I don't fully agree with is always going to be less than, than starting a company with people and creating that community of artists who really want to change the game. Cause we are young. We do a lot of things ahead, but like for me, that was, that was the moment in my life where I decided that what has been done or the rules of our practices that we're expected to do in theater no longer serve me. I love that. I, I think back to when I, when I started my own nonprofit theater and yeah. and that was that was exactly why I did it. I was I was not being fed and I was not believing in the work that was being done in the area and so I just I went and created the work that I wanted done and what did feed me. Um so that's that's really beautiful. I think I think teachers can do that too. I think teachers can do that in their practice and what they're doing in their classrooms and productions. I think teaching should be fun. Like it's so crazy to me like sometimes that like it's like, you're a lot, like, I don't, I just, we have really fallen into a rut in general. I mean, a lot of things, but especially in education and the education of Shakespeare, it's like, oh my God. But that's because the theaters are so boring. I could tell you like Chicago Shakes bores the crap out of me. Like I wish I saw Chicago Shakes on the roof of the Red Lion pub 40 years ago. I want to see that Chicago Shakes. Because now Chicago Shakes is, well, it's also catered to a very white and older audience. So that's a whole nother thing too. But like, yeah, like it's up to us. It's up to us in an educational setting to be the ones who changes the, change the rules of the game. And you are not going to make friends. <laughs> like you'll make some friends. You'll make some great friends. But like not everyone's going to love it. And it's having the courage to do that. When we talk about decolonization, when you say like even Illinois Shakes is like starting to do some things, but I mean, God, like this isn't going to change unless we do it. And when you do talk about Shakespeare and when you do talk about something, it has become so, it has always been white. It has always been white and privileged. And when we say it is universal, it is absolutely a lie. It is not for everybody. It's not for anybody anymore. It was never for everybody then, but it's even less so now. Because, like, it, yeah, it's one of the biggest frustrations, and I think why I do what I do. Because it's like, I would rather go against the grade and start making it for everybody, no matter their education, no matter their background, no matter their race, no matter their sexuality, no matter their gender. 
which sounds like a lot, but it's really not. It's not difficult to do. It's not. And I think I think we we as theater teachers, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself as well from when I was in the classroom, um, I, we think we do that really well already. And we don't. Because we 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 say we are, and then we fall back on those default practices, mm-hmm. um, and we don't hold ourselves to it, and we don't ask our students to hold us accountable to that. So I think I think there are things that we can do, and things that we can keep doing and do better. Yeah, like what struggles? I guess I should ask, like, because you said you have a fear of Shakespeare multiple times. Um, so what is that fear? Like, what is that? What holds you back from it? Like, what challenges you in a classroom? The language. Okay. The language. Um, and 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 taking time and, and and knowing what's being said and talked about and and finding the beauty in the language and making that language human mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly that is yeah that is something once you get into the language it becomes easier it's really just there are so many levels of homework that i even asked seventh and eighth grade students to do and the first one is just define every word you don't know and the words of the other characters that are speaking to you. And then paraphrase it, put it in your own words. Great, and then let's work at that. Cause in the paraphrase then is when I could work with them to being like, and my, my colloquialisms change depending on who I'm working with, whether it's a professional company of actors or like a seventh grade student who is you know, on the south side of Chicago, like, right. like it all changes, it has to, you gotta adapt Absolutely. like, and you gotta, because they're not, like they're not reading old English and going to get it all. So I think, yeah. Um, I was going to say, but I think it's, I think the biggest thing is understanding our own fears and understanding our own privilege and yeah. how that affects our filter when we do teach, when we do direct. We talked a little bit about decolonization. That's something that I've realized since Titus a year ago. So that's been something we've been working on and how do you decolonize? How do you approach conscious, expand conscious casting? But we were called race neutral last October, not like a year ago. And I was like, we're not, we're not race neutral yet. We're not race neutral. And that, but it also held me accountable. So I was just thinking about like how we decolonize, but it's, yeah, just reading a lot. That didn't really make any sense. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, well, do you, do you have any suggestions for how teachers can do that? Yeah, I think one, reading everything you can about whiteness and whiteness in education. Um, and cause you have to be aware that you are messing up a lot, that you are saying things that you might not think are racist that are, that do make people uncomfortable. And when it comes to Shakespeare, it's like, like I said, truly anytime they use the word Ethiop slave more, um, they do use the N word once or twice. Um, usually gets taken out or it's adjusted slightly differently, but it's definitely still in there. Um, and you can't just be like, let's do this show. And like, this is what's happening. I'm like, no, there are people in your room that the word slave affects. And you have to be open to discussion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be open that like, you're not aware anyway. But yeah, I think whiteness and education, like educating yourself on that. And then that Shakespeare, yeah accepting that Shakespeare was racist, but that's what we're working on and working with. I had a teacher recently who was like, I just, I don't think he meant it that way. And I was like, Oh dear God. I was like, someone pray for me. Cause we're about to get into the real conversation of this. I was like, I think he did. 
I think he did a lot of really incredible things. I think he was progressive in many ways, but look at ourselves. We're also progressive in many ways, yet we also add to the white supremacy of this society. Just because we're not a white supremacist does not mean we aren't part of that culture or add to it. Well, because like, like you've said so far, I mean, it's part of the system. It's Yeah. And, and the system is working the way it's supposed to right now. And, and it's up to us to, to disrupt that and work to create a new one. Yeah. And you talk about like big Shakespeare theaters are just like, oh, look at like we're progressive. And I was like, that's not progressive. Like that's not, that's not what you do. What's progressive is what Michelle Terry did at the Globe is someone approached her. I want to do an all black, have an all non like people of color production team, all of this of Richard II. And she said, absolutely. And didn't try to control it. That's what we have to do. We have to take a step back and be like, oh, yeah. Because at the end of the day, look at it. They're still coming to us asking for opportunities. Like, that is not an equal society. Mm-hmm. That is not an equal society at all. That is not equal in the field, even in education. Like, how you cast an education is so incredibly important. Because it teaches, it teaches students early on what they can and cannot be. We have a, a very um, awesome privilege and responsibility mm-hmm. as teachers to 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 do that and to to set standards for young artists entering the field, um, from yeah. classrooms of consent to decolonized work to you know bringing your your full self and identity to the work that you're doing and like you said, working on things that you're passionate about and that that feed you. Yeah, but, uh, and I think even though they feed me, still putting my ego aside, because I find we attract the best people when you are doing a passion project. But even though it's your passion project, you have to, you have to also be like, but now it's our passion project. Right. So, um, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I hope, like I said, I didn't. Veer off too much. This you, is a hard one for like, yeah. <laughs> you did not, and I appreciate everything you've, you've said. Um, I I did want to make sure that we 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 plug your website. It's shakesonthedeck.com. Is that correct? Did I say that right? Yes, yes you did. Good, 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 good. Um, yes. So if you are uh, teachers, check out that website. And if you're ever in LA, please check out and see what they are doing. Um, I know next time I'm out there, I'm going to see what I can do to get out and see some of your work. Um, I don't get out very often, but I, I, I will definitely try to do that. Um, I do have two final questions for you. If you, if you've got just a moment, um, I'd love to know about a resource, uh, that you have used or used or could recommend to teachers, um, in regards to anything we've talked about today. Yeah. Um, the first is the Globe produced a series of Shakespeare's Globe in London produced a five topic podcast on such stuff that talks about whiteness and education. And it ends with the deco- the fifth episode is decolonization of Shakespeare. And it really talks to incredible artists. So that is like a number one thing. And then second, um, I would say, um, white fragility as like a reading which is like totally not a topic in shakespeare but i think the two for me when you're approaching this go hand in hand um 
but yeah, if you if if educators check out our website, feel free to email me. I probably can have more specific <laughs> exercises. And you're like, what exercises? I'm like, what do I do? It's been so long since we've been in a rehearsal room that I'm like, I have no idea anymore. Like, I have no idea. But we have curriculum after curriculum. So anyway, well, t- talk real quick about the the work that you have been doing uh, since. Uh- the, the pandemic has descended upon us. Um, and do you have anything coming up that we could check out? Um, we're going to do an all ladies Macbeth again. Um, I wouldn't say that we've decolonized fully in that, but we are conscious. It's like, that's going to be our conscious casting and our casting at our finest. So we're reviving that um, angels in America though. We've been sitting on since we hit our year anniversary. We got the rights. We got the next LA rights to both parts. That'll be in May. Um, but right now we're kind of just lying low till we can come back because our style of performance is not restricted to traditional theater. doesn't mean we're like crazy or avant-garde. It's just that we're not limited by a building that is set in stone. So we can actually adapt really easily and we'll be one of the first companies in LA, if not the first company in LA to come back. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully. If we can get it together COVID-wise, but who knows. <laughs> but yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, so my okay. final question for you, Mikey, is the one that I ask everyone, and is what are your parting words of wisdom to um, new teachers entering the field or, or that veteran teacher who just needs an encouraging word right now? Have the courage to fail. And failing does not make you a bad person. It's what you do after you fail that does. Good. That's good. Well, Mikey, thank you so much for for joining me today and and talking about your work. Thank you. It was so nice to, to chat with you and 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 hear the amazing things that are going on. Um, and I I will uh, definitely thank um, Jonathan and Jonathan at Stage to Stream for for um, somehow making the the fates put us together. So. Um, but I wish you all the best with everything that you're doing. And and again, that website is shakesonthedeck.com. Uh, so check out Mikey's work. And thank you for, yeah, thank you again for having me on. I think you having these conversations, a variety of them are really important. So that's awesome. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. And curtain. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Fed Talks Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done so already, please find Fed Talks on your favorite podcast provider and subscribe to the show so it automatically shows up in your podcast app each week. Rate us by leaving some stars, review us by saying what you love about the show, and most importantly, share the podcast with those theater educators in your life. Find us on all your favorite social media. We're on Twitter at Theater Ed Talks, Fed Talks on Facebook, and Fed Talks Podcast on Instagram. Visit our website at www.fedtalks.com for all our past episodes and resource lists from the guests you've met on the show. And email me directly by emailing fedtalkspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear your feedback, recommendations for guests on the show, or if you just want to be a guest yourself. Thank you, Joel Hamlin and Joshua Schusterman, for the use of your original music that we hear on the show. And thank you for listening and for all you do for your students. I'm Jimmy Chrisman. Join me next week for another great interview. Have a great week.